Revelation chapter 3, we'll look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. I want to start this morning by just telling you, uh, today I really want to have uh, a family discussion. Uh, because this passage that we have before us is, is really one of those passages that we couldn't have planned any better uh, for the life of our church. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but we as elders, and we pray and we ask the Lord, uh, what, what should we preach on next? So we begin to talk about it and think through it. Uh, we try to plan um, months out, some nine months to a year out on our preaching schedule. And so we plan this sermon out on this day, not knowing uh, the impact and really uh, it would hit us where we are as a church. And this is one of the great things about preaching through books of the Bible. God will often use the text that we schedule to land perfectly in what we need to hear and when we need to hear it. And so I tell you all that to kind of speed you up to pace on where we're at as a church. If you were at Community in Prayer uh, this past Sunday afternoon, uh, a week ago, uh, I'm going to say, man, we had an awesome time. Wasn't it great? Did you guys enjoy that? Wasn't that great over here? You guys enjoy that? Okay, all right. Uh, I love the claps at Integrity. They die off so quickly. They're just like, it's like we just don't know how to finish. You know, it's just, um, but man, I loved it. it we got to bring uh, some people up front and, and introduce them as members, pray for them, encourage them. Um, we also got to spend a good portion of our time together uh, to talk about what the Lord would have for us next as far as our location. And we presented to you a, a, a new building that we are, Lord willing, going to move into, uh, that we are actually under contract to purchase right now, uh, which we will close in April. And uh, Lord willing, if we are able to do the renovations at a timely manner, we'll be in the building at the end of this year. And here's the rendering that we are going to introduce you now. Um, the rendering. It's going to be up there. Seven letters to seven churches. Is it up there? Good. Pray for that. day. There it is. Good job. Good job. Yeah. And um, man, we're excited about this opportunity. It's, it, the building does not look like that right now, okay? Um, but through your generosity, uh, we're encouraging everyone to give a three-year pledge. You can find information out in the lobby to do that. Um, there's also a breakdown of this rendering and how it looks sort of looking down and like the layout and all that in the lobby as well. Uh, we also have a website we encourage you to go to liveintegrity.org slash gospel legacy. And you can, uh, you can fill out an online commitment card there. Uh, you can see more about this rendering. There's like frequently asked questions and all this stuff. Um, so we're, we're really excited uh, about this opportunity. And so we encourage you all to be all in. Uh, we encourage you wherever stage of life, if you even want to give a dollar a day, uh, we, you'd be surprised at how much, how far um, that can go. And so as we're in this season, as we're looking at these new challenges or new opportunities that we have to face, um, here's what I don't want to do with this. I don't, for, first of all, A, want to use up our time on Sunday mornings to talk about building stuff. Amen? I don't want to do that. I don't want to put a thermometer on the stage and take the book of Nehemiah out of context and say it's not about a wall, it's about a building. I'm not going to do that, okay? Uh, I don't want to do that. Um, but the text that we have in front of us this morning is, is perfect for where we're at because 
it speaks to really a church that spent a lot of their identity on a physical structure and not on Christ. Now, we're calling this initiative as we move forward the Gospel Legacy Campaign. And here's why. We want to see this move, this building, as a tool for the gospel. In other words, it's not a measure for how we see success as a church. It's not a measure of how we see health as a church. It's a tool for the gospel. I've spoken to people over the years that have been a part of church plants, and they've been a part of seeing a church suffer to find spaces to meet in and setting up and tearing down and meeting in schools or meeting in convention centers or wherever, and they have no or little visibility and people in their community not taking them seriously because they don't have a building and then when they finally get a building, I hear people say, well, man, once we got a building, you know, we had all this momentum and we, we were really trusting God and moving. Once we got a building, we sort of lost our identity. We got too comfortable. We got too complacent. And over time, we really stopped reaching people. And this happens all the time. Uh, newer studies actually show that about 70% of churches in America are in decline or have plateaued. 70%. In decline or have plateaued, which means only 30% are actually growing. And this is even happening in other places in the world. Like, for instance, in England, it's declining drastically. Over the last five years in England, there's been 500 church buildings that have shut down and sold their buildings. And now, 500 churches in a five year period of time, uh, time period in England are now being converted into luxury homes. 500 in England. In other words, this used to be a place where people would come and gather and worship the Lord and sing praises to his name and hear the gospel preach and take the Lord's Supper and baptize people. And you see all these things happen. And then now there are places where wealthy men and women choose to live. Furthermore, in our own country, somewhere between four and 7,000, that's a wide range. The reason why it's wide, it's hard to tell when these churches close their doors because some of them might uh, merge into another church or maybe they go into a house church. But somewhere between four and 7,000 churches close their doors in the United States every year. And conservatively, that equals 100 churches per week that close their doors. And I say all that not to frighten us. Uh, I'm actually encouraged by what's happening in the Church of America. I've seen mainline denominations make a turn for the better. I've actually seen healthier churches being planted that are more centered around the gospel. I I do see that. I do believe that God's church is still prevailing. But I do share that those statistics with you to give you a reality that churches all around us die. And sadly, many churches are under the illusion that they are alive, but they are facing a slow and painful death unknowingly. And most of the time when this happens, they've lost something. They've lost the mission. They've lost the passion for the gospel. They've lost the passion of preaching the word. They've lost the passion for their community. But how? How does this happen? And how do we avoid it, Integrity Church? That's the big question that we're faced with this morning. So here in Revelation, this is what's taking place. In Revelation 1 through 3, John, the apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing seven letters to seven churches, telling these churches that Jesus is going to return. 
And God in his kindness, he gives John uh, these revelations of what it will be like when Jesus returns. And so as he writes these seven letters to seven churches, they're to be as a warning, a sobering warning for each of these churches whom John formally ministered to and traveled to, to be prepared. And they were to serve really as a wake-up call. He's telling these churches, you need to wake up because Jesus is coming. And so the church that he talks to in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, is a church that desperately needs a wake-up call. And what we're going to see, the same words that he tells this church, the church of Sardis, are so important and applicable for us this morning. Revelation 3, verse 1. And the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. This is God speaking to the church of Sardis. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are what? Dead. You're dead. And Sardis is one of the churches in which God really doesn't have a lot of good things to say about them. And part of this, I believe, is the compromise that they've been invested in. They have compromised on what they believe and how they teach and how they preach. And they begin to live more like the city of Sardis than the church of Sardis. Now, in order to understand this compromise, we have to understand the city of, of, of Sardis. Sardis was a city that has been known for its exuberant pride. It was located and situated in a place that was nearly impossible to invade. It sat on top of this mountain, and it was surrounded by a great wall on top of this mountain. And they sat pridefully thinking, no one will ever invade us. No one will ever destroy us. We are always secure. And then what happened? Well, according to church historian Herodotus, he tells the story of the, the first time that the city of Sardis fell. He tells the story of King Cyrus. King Cyrus came to the city and he saw on the outside of the city, the city that's up on the mountain, surrounded and fortified by this wall. And he took it as a challenge. I'm going to be the first to take it down. And so what, what Cyrus began to do is he began to tell his army. He said, if any of you soldiers figure out a way to break through this wall, I will compensate you greatly. And sure enough, one of his soldiers rose to the occasion. He kind of went on a recon mission and studied the wall and studied the mountains, spied on them for enough time to strategically map out a plan to train his other soldiers to climb this mountain and break through a wall. And he found the wall had vulnerable spots. And he took advantage of those spots and broke through and nearly flattened the city of Sardis. Did that stop them? No. They rebuilt. 
And they reestablished everything. They began to turn to their love of money. In fact, uh, 500 years before Christ, they were the first to, to, to make coins that represented Sardis and, and money and income. And they began to really become a place known for cheap money, how to, how to get cheap money, how to get it quickly, how to get it fast, how to move up in the world, how to have lavish things. And so what happened? Well, 200 more years later, someone figures out another way to get past the wall, almost exactly the same plan. 200 years before Christ, same thing happens. They're invaded again, and they're almost destroyed again. Did that stop them? Nope. 17 years after Jesus, 17 AD, they came in, they were here they were, rebuilt the city, reestablished everything, 17 AD, earthquake happens, nearly flattens them again. Did that stop them? No. They rebuilt everything again, and they reestablished themselves financially. Money again was the idol. In fact, William Barclay says it this way, Bible scholar William Barclay says, The great characteristic of Sardis was that even on pagan lips, Sardis was the name of contempt. Its people were notoriously loose living, notoriously pleasure and luxury loving. Sardis was a city of decadence. You see, the problem with the church at Sardis was they found the same security in all the things that the city of Sardis found security. All about our walls, all about our structure, all about our money, all about the physical, material things, all about our stuff. And for this reason, when God looks at the church of Sardis, he says, you think you're alive because you have the stuff. You think you're alive You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. In other words, the church looked physically alive, but it was spiritually dead. It had made an idol of what appeared to be secure and strong. They made an idol of everything external. When I first started um, preaching, I was in my early 20s, and I would go... um, I was dating Jess at the time to rule Baptist churches in Eastern North Carolina, and that's how I really got started preaching. And I remember um, a couple of times I would go to like places, and I would, I would show up, and they'd say, Here, here's the bulletin, here's the outline of everything. I'm like, okay, great. Who's going to do the welcome? They're like, you are. I'm like, okay, I've got to welcome her. Okay, great. I don't know any of these people, but and who's going to do the pastoral prayer where I pray for the list of people? They're like, you are. I'm like, okay. I say, like, who's going to do the music? They're like, you are. I'm like, oh, this is going to go really bad, right? I had to do the songs. I had to do the all. Yeah, I did everything. And, um, and so these churches were really struggling. I, and I'll never forget this one church. I, I pulled up beautiful lot location. It was right on the corner of a really busy road where thousands of people were driving by on a daily basis. And I drive up and this property is gorgeous, well landscaped. It looked like it was freshly painted well-groomed on the outside. And I walk through the doors, this beautiful historic sanctuary where I found nine people ready 
to worship. And as I got there, this older gentleman took me by the arm and said, let me show you around this building. He began to tell me everything about the building, the structure of the building, how everything was made. And when they added these classrooms and when they added this bathroom and when they added this steeple and when they put on this cross and then all then these pews and how old these pews are and these, all of these things. And then he said something that just broke my heart. He said, our greatest accomplishment as a church has been when it actually happened recently. And it's when our church was added to the historical society of North Carolina. Friends, that is a tragedy. It's a tragedy. And not only that, let me again start asking, asking him questions about the church and the ministries that they've had, and no one knew is coming. No one's being baptized. No one's sharing the gospel. Everything was about the past. Nothing was about the current or the future. On the outside, it looked alive, but in the reality, inside, it was dead. And don't misunderstand me. It's not just rural churches with low attendance. It's not about that at all. There's actually large churches full of people, full of programs, full of opportunities to get plugged in that look alive but are dead. And here's why. Because nothing they do shows dependence on Christ and the gospel. Every bit of their security and measure of growth is all about the stuff. It's all about the external things that look like security but are not true gospel transformation. And I say that weary, with a weary tone in my voice. I t- let me tell you, I'm worried that this could be us. Either one of those scenarios. I pray to God that is never us. The problem with the church of Sardis is that they never learn from their history. They never look back and they realize that all the external things aren't what hold the church together. They never said, man, well, last time we built the wall, that really didn't work out too well. No, what do they do? They just kept building the wall. They kept building their structure, thinking this is what holds them together, and it doesn't. So what does God tell them? Look at verse 2. He says, wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then. What you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. Now, look at what God says to him. He says, I know your works, and your works are not complete. Which, by the way, is true of all of us. True of every single church. He's saying, I have more in store for you. You have not arrived, church. There's no such thing as a church that's arrived. You know why? Because Christ hasn't come. Our church, our church, we never finish being the church until Christ returns. But he's reminding them, hey, don't sit there and think because you've rebuilt this wall and you've rebuilt this structure that you've arrived. You haven't arrived. I've got, your works are incomplete. I have more for you. And so what does he say? I'm calling on you. To remember what you received and heard. What is that? 
It's the gospel. He's asking them, hey, return back to the one thing that really matters. Return back to the saving power of Jesus. Come back to proclaiming that truth. And he says, and if you don't, I'm going to show up like a thief. I'm going to shut your doors. This should ring like an alarm in their ears. They should have thought back to their history and thought of the times that they were invaded by their enemies or thought of the time that they were almost flattened by an earthquake. These words are reminders that the church belongs to one person, and that's Jesus. Look at the way that Jesus even starts the letter. He says, the words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. In other words, he's saying, I'm the one who's holding this all together. No one can take it away from me. It's mine. It's not yours, Sardis. It's mine. And this is a wonderful truth that I have to rest in as a pastor of the church that, man, my wife and I, we moved here and we tried to plant this thing with no one but me and Jess and Finn. And we began to see God grow this thing. And I have to remind myself all the time, Ben, just because you moved here to plant, it's not yours. I have to tell the elders, hey, this isn't ours. This is God's church. And we have to remind ourselves that God is the one who has all the authority over this church. He is the one who holds it all together. He's active and present and moving in the lives of our people. That God has put us in, in, uh, over in, in shepherding and loving and caring for. God has given us that role. But he's the true shepherd. God is not like one of the deists that says he creates the world and then he spins it like a top and he sits back and watches and hopes that, man, we make it and hopes that we have a good out. He's like crossing his fingers. Man, I hope Integrity Church makes it and I hope they can figure it out. No, he's actively involved. He's actively working. He's actively moving. He's actively holding this thing together. And he's like, man, I can start it. And I can shut it down. And that's what he's telling the church of Sardis. If you don't preach the gospel, I'm going to shut it down. Their longing wasn't to please the one who held them together. So God is warning them that he's going to shut their doors. Now, these are discouraging words. But there's one thread of hope that I want you to see. And that's in verse 4. He says, Yet... You still, you, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed, clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Friends, hear this. Even in the midst of the dead church, there's still a remnant, a small group of believers who walk with the Lord. Sardis was a church that was dead because of spiritual compromise. They, they wanted triumph so badly they wanted to look significant. They wanted to look luxurious. They wanted to show that, man, we're, we're almost as good as Rome. 
And it's interesting the language that he uses. He says, I'm going to clothe you in white garments. And for Rome, to be clothed in white garments is one of triumph. You are victorious. And in their minds, okay, if we want to be victorious, we have to have money. We have to have security. No, God's saying, you don't need any of that. What I'm telling you, what makes you victorious is that you're clothed in a white robe. That you have your sins forgiven. That no longer are you identified by your filthy rags that separate you from God. No longer are you alienated or a foreigner from God. No, now your sins are forgiven. Another word for that is you are justified. You're positionally made right before God. I love the way Paul describes justification in in these words in in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believed. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are, what's the word? Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to to be received by faith. How does Paul describe justification? He says, your sins are forgiven through Jesus's death on the cross. Jesus died in your place. And because Jesus died in your place, when God looks at you, no longer does he see you as a sinner. He sees you as a believer, even though you're going to continue to sin, but you now are made righteous. That's how God looks at you through Jesus dying in your place. He made you clean. He covered you in his righteousness. And here's the reality. None of us deserve white garments. We can't earn these garments. They are given to us. And what Jesus says to the church of Sardis is something that I don't want us to miss. What does he say about the one who wears white garments? He says, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The book of life is also mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. We won't go there, but he's talking about, again, the great white throne of judgment. When when God looks at our works and sees what we've done to obtain the favor of God. And he says, Only the ones that their name is written in the book of life are believers. So how do you get your name written in the book of life? Well, he says it in Revelation 20. He says, according to what they have done. In other words, for the unbeliever, their works are what they have to rely on. But they can't obtain the righteousness of God because what scripture tells us about our own works, they're filthy rags. They're not pure white robes. How do we obtain the righteousness of God? We have to believe in Jesus. We have to believe that Jesus did the work for us. That Jesus died in our place. In Integrity Church, having our name written in the book of life isn't about what we've done. It's about what Christ has done in our place. And if you've noticed this text, the word or the idea of name, 
the word name or the idea of name, it runs like a thread throughout this passage. The church had a name or a reputation for being alive, but it was dead. There were a few names who were faithful. Christ will not erase true believers' names from the book of life. Sardis was all about their own name. But if you read the text, it it clearly shows us there's only one name that matters. This is why he tells them, remember then what you receive and what you've heard. Keep it and repent. Friends, the only thing that matters is, the only name that matters is the name of Jesus. That's the name that keeps the church alive. And the problem with with Sardis was they tried to build a church on their own name, but all the stuff they had and not the name of Jesus. See how appropriate this is for our church right now? Like, again, we could not have planned this any better. So here's my plea for us, Integrity Church. Lord willing, we're going to move into this new space that we'll own. And our plan is, again, to close in April and be in the end of the year, Lord willing, again. We'll renovate the facility for several months. And we'll hopefully move in again at the end of this year. But this is a huge opportunity for our church. I mean, for the first time, people will actually know where we are. I know a lot of you, like the way that you describe your relationship with being a part of Integrity Church, it's like, when did you come? What building were we in? I was in this one. Oh, yeah, I was there, you know? And then now when you explain where we are, you can say it's right here. And you don't have to say, it used to be Unity Free Will Baptist Church, and now it's a Catholic high school, but we're not Catholic, but we co-lease it with the school, but we're not Catholic, and what we meet here, I know they have a sign out front, and we do too, and it's really confusing, but hey, just trust us. 9-11, walk through the front doors, we're going to be there, right? You don't have to do that anymore. That's good news, right? Amen? That's good. Thank you. Again, a weird clap. Uh, Also, stability, having a stable place to be, a hub for ministry, a place that our community knows that, man, we can serve you here. You can be a part of this here. Integrity Kids is is growing rapidly. And we have a lot of little babies back there. I'm trying to figure out what I preached on about a year ago that led to all of that. But it's growing, and we're thankful, and we're blessed to see Little kids packed in that little hallway. This provides more space for that. It also provides a place for training. I don't know if you know this, but if you are a member of Integrity Church, there's lots of classes and training to help you and grow you in your faith and disciple you well. Theological training, practically th- training, practical training, we want to offer that to you. By the way, hint, hint, you should become a member, all right? But we want to, we want to have a space that does that. We only get this room one day a week. So our events, things like communion and prayer, we, we plan it on Sunday strategically so that we can have that space and do that together. But it would be awesome if we could have something seven days a week so we can use and maximize the space for as much as possible. Not only that, but future possibilities, potential uh, to expand. This space allows us to do that. If we, wanted to, if we outgrew the space by the grace of God, we can add more space to that lot because it's a big enough lot to do that. We've actually had... Um, drawings up and a civil engineer do some of the work and let us see that we can, we can grow this space and we can maximize um, our, our potential there. So we see this as a huge opportunity for our church, but here's the thing. The last thing that we want to build is a monument. We want to have a legacy. 
And for this reason, we're calling it the Gospel Legacy Campaign. It's something that we want to promote the name of Jesus. And here's why. Because our name really doesn't matter in the end. And practically, here's how we can avoid approaching this like Sardis. We see it not as a means to an end, but really as a new beginning. This new location will provide lots of new ways to reach people for the gospel. And so what I have to do when I think about it, like how do I put in perspective so I don't lose sight, so I don't become like Sardis and find all of our security and all of our success in this, in this physical structure? How do I do that? Well, what I do, I try to mentally think about what I would hope that we would lead our church to from now. We all right? Also in a new soundboard, which would uh, be added to that. Um, I think about three to five years from now. And so when I think about, okay, three to five years, we're walking into Integrity Church, and we walk into the lobby. I mean, this is what I want to see. I want to see a, a map that's up on the wall of the city of Greenville and Winterville and the areas that surround it with little dots on it that sh- show where our small groups are. And by the way, at that point, my goal for us would be to have three times the amount of small groups that we have right now. Why? Because I want the new people that come to have a place that they can fall into and be a part of gospel community. And also, for those of you who are here right now, you have more opportunities to invite people to be in gospel community and be disciple. Because here at Integrity, we say discipleship happens where? In what? Community. And not only that, but we want to say because we have more small groups, we have more opportunities to serve and love our city well. We do things like serve Greenville. We try to do that every year as a church and encourage and mobilize our small groups to go out and make an impact on our city and make an impact for the gospel. This gives us more opportunities to do that. Not only that, when you walk into our lobby, another thing I would, I would hope we see is another map, a map of the world, a map of, uh, that indicates missionaries that we've sent out, not just across the world, but also in the states that we've supported and we've sponsored or we've sent out from our own, that we've trained up and raised up and sent out, not only in, our, in, in the United States of America, but Eastern North Carolina, that we've helped saturate Eastern North Carolina for the gospel, which would show that we've used this space to train church planters and missionaries. As you walk through the lobby, then you would go to Integrity Kids and Integrity Kids would be full of new families that have been reached because you have been faithful to share the gospel and make disciples where you live, work, and play. And as you see the, the kids, you then see the volunteers who are a part of our Serve One, Tend One culture who are serving at one service and attending the other, which is what we do now. And I want to thank you all for doing that. And again, they always need more help back there. And these new volunteers are eager to share the gospel with these kids each week so they can continue to make an impact. Then as you walk over to our auditorium for worship, you see familiar faces of growing families. Some of those faces are college students now, and they chose not to move to Raleigh or Charlotte and disobey God. They've chosen to stay here. (laughs) And because they've stayed here, They want to make an impact here in Greenville or be sent out as missionaries to plant the gospel in uttermost parts of the world or be a part of a church planting team. 
And also because they've stayed here, they actually married a very attractive person who loves Jesus because God just blessed their efforts that way. (laughs) Hey, this is my idea, all right? Other familiar faces that you see who are those who continue to faithfully welcome and fellowship those who come in the door, not because they're on the hospitality team, but because we have a culture of loving and caring for those who come. Not only are there familiar faces, but there's new faces. New faces that, with college students and new young professionals, new families, new empty nesters. And we have that because all can find a place here. Not because we found a permanent home, but because we've used this permanent home in a way that points others to Jesus. And that's our hope, is to make true disciples of Jesus. And I think further down the road, we see more weddings happen, families growing, more leaders trained, more small groups starting, more church planters being sent out, more missionaries going to the hard places that we don't even have room to display that in our lobby anymore. And Lord willing, if we were able to grow even more, that we would expand. And we maybe we even would grow out all our space all together. And maybe we would just use that space to bless another gospel-centered church because after all, it's not a monument. It's just a tool for the gospel. And look, I don't know the future. Those are just things that I have to think about to get me excited. And it helps me focus on what's important, which is really seeing lives transformed by the name of Jesus Christ. And if we don't think that way, if we don't think of it as a tool to impact people for the gospel, and we think of it as a monument, we can still grow. We can still get people in the door. But we can become like Sardis, which has the appearance of life, but is beginning to die. Integrity Church, the only thing that keeps us alive is the power of the gospel. And so, as we take this new step of faith, can we commit together that this is for one name, and that name is not Integrity Church. It's Jesus. That's the only name that matters. And as we make that commitment together, there's three who are responsible. One is Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns and holds this church in his hand like he does the seven churches and not only that we have a responsibility as elders who preach the gospel every week who want to shepherd you and care for you and mobilize you for mission and not only that but you have a responsibility as members and regular tenders of integrity to make your life not about yourself but make it about Jesus that's what's going to make the impact here in Greenville and throughout the world. And that's our hope. God help us. Let's pray.